Today's show is about the debate for and against the removal of monuments and names of the Confederate States of America that have occupied public places all across the United States of America. Look, we all know, if you ain't first, you last. You're listening to Looking Forward with Michael Bazan, where we take a hard look at the past as well as the present in an effort to construct an amazing future. Your host is Michael Bazan. Enjoy the show. Today we address the heated topic of Confederate symbols being strewn across our great nation, the United States of America. Many will argue that these monuments were built during times that correlated with great injustices, many at the hands of what should be deemed a terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan. Many will argue that they were built to intimidate black Americans while propagating the belief that they are inferior and those who have white skin are superior. Many will also argue that the biggest peak of their construction went hand in hand with the decades of the creation and enforcement of Jim Crow laws. Some have said that the Confederate monuments are Jim Crow laws in physical form. Many will state that even Robert E. Lee was opposed to Confederate statues and felt that their erection would keep the divisions alive. Many believe that it is time to stop celebrating white supremacist and white power. Many will say that they belong in museums so that context may be given to them. Others will say that Robert E. Lee was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. Many will say that celebrating traitors to the United States of America is never okay. Now, all these arguments have validity and are extremely important, but I feel they are being covered really well by many already. And today, I want to focus on two other aspects as well as rebuttaling the arguments for removal. Now I'm going to state the obvious, but oddly enough, it is not something that is usually part of the conversation, more or less a topic that begins the conversation. So fact number one, the Confederate States of America was a short-lived country that went to war with the United States of America. They had a name, several flags, a constitution, and a president. There's literally no reason why monuments or any homage to this failed nation have the remotest validity to exist at our Capitol buildings, our courthouses, in our parks, at our schools, or military bases. We don't have statues of Erwin Rommel at our courthouses or any number of access military leaders. The ocean does not change the fact that those in the Confederacy, along with Rommel, Mussolini, and yes, even Hitler, were representing countries that went to war with the United States of America, lost, and required zero obligation on America's part to pay them homage. Fact number two. It costs money to maintain these monuments. This money comes predominantly from the local taxpayer as well as from the national government. Now, who's familiar with Bovar in Biloxi, Mississippi? It was the home of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States of America, not the United States of America. Now, the Mississippi legislature earmarks $100,000 a year for its preservation. As of May 2010, Bavar had received $17.2 million in federal and state aid related to damages caused by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. 
You and I both know there were a lot of Americans in need of assistance during and after Hurricane Katrina, and the fact that a dime went to prop up the president of a racist country that we defeated is misplaced priorities at best. This is what they did with the money. While nearly half of the money went to renovating historic structures and replacing content, more than $8.3 million funded construction of a new building that contains a museum and a library. Now, we live in a nation whose tradition is to build a library to presidents of the United States of America, whether they are Democrat or Republican. But what obligation did the American people and the government have to not only restore but finance additions to this symbol of the Confederacy while so many lost their homes, lives, and generally suffered during Hurricane Katrina. But even though these are monuments from another nation and they cost money to maintain and they are symbols of hate, racism, and an imagined supremacy, people still defend them. So let's transition to those arguments. One of the first arguments we hear endlessly is that it's heritage, not hate, or its southern pride. Here's a quote from Mac McCain. It's true that the legacy of the Confederacy has been deeply influential for today's South, and I do embrace southern pride. But I'm proud of the South not because of the Confederacy, but in spite of the Confederacy. I have much more pride in the Southerners who have battled racism than those who enforce and promote racism. He went on to say, Don't show me the Confederate flag and tell me that it's a symbol of Southern pride. Don't tell me it's about heritage, not hate, when we have inherited a world shaped by white supremacy. Don't tell me that Roof was motivated by Southern pride when the people massacred in a church were Southerners too. As we mourn for the people affected by the Charleston massacre, let us remember the words of my fellow Southerner, the Reverend Martin Luther King. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil triumphant. I still believe that we shall overcome. Now, it's important to have pride in oneself and one's roots, but that does not mean that our pride has to embody the worst parts of the past. I truly believe that you are personally responsible for becoming more ethical than the society you grew up in. There's a better world ahead. Be a contributing part of it. Number two, removing the statues will not actually address the problems. First of all, I would argue that a single action is never going to fully address a complex issue, but that does not mean that we quit before we even get to the starting point. I had the good fortune to have a history major and an art minor, This duality was very influential. It helped me see that anything and everything that is created has an intended propagation. What I mean is that it has some intention or even effect of spreading an idea or theory. I got to study the American Revolution, World War II, Greek history, Roman history, the divine right of kings, the dissemination of religion and political doctrine, and the monuments that were built to honor this or that person and influence the masses like the painting of Napoleon crossing the Alps, or king after king declaring their divine right to rule through painting. 
you know, the Nazis used art to express their imagined superiority to an extent that had not been seen at that time. They used repetition and symbology to influence the masses. In Christianity, stained glass windows and, and pictures were used so that one did not need to be literate to be influenced. To say that the Confederate monument is an innocuous historical artifact is naive and disingenuous. Even if there is that one person from the South that does not equate the Confederacy with racism and hate, that does not change the fact that it is received that way by many others. In the Confederacy, the population was listed as 5.5 million free and 3.5 million enslaved. 39% of the population were enslaved. I guarantee you that they do not view monuments of the Confederacy as innocuous, and neither Neither do white supremacists that gather at these monuments or visit them before committing hate crimes like Roof that was mentioned earlier. In 2015, before Dylan Roof opened fire on a Bible study group at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, killing nine African Americans, he spent a day touring places associated with the subjugation of black people, including former plantations and a Confederate museum. Heidi Barrick, who leads the Southern Poverty Law Center's work tracking hate groups, stated that Confederate sites play to the white supremacist imagination. They are treated as sacred by white supremacists and represent what this country should be and what it would have been if the Civil War had not been lost. On to number three. This one is one of the most insincere, but an argument used to keep Confederate monuments up is that statues should remain up to remember a shameful period in history. They are by no means being used in this fashion. I've seen some very ignorant people even compare them um, to concentration camps being preserved. That is beyond idiotic. Let me read you a bit about the ludicrous nature of this dichotomy. This is uh, Remembering National Tragedies by Lisa Wade. I am in Munich for a month, and last week I visited the Dachau concentration camp memorial. I was struck by the difference between the tour I took here and the tour I took of the lower plantation just outside of New Orleans in May. Visiting Dachau put the two modes of remembrance in stark contrast. Without trying to argue that the Holocaust and the U.S. slavery are the same in every way, I would like to suggest that both are tragic histories that included unimaginable human suffering, yet the tours were very different. I'll, sh I'll start with Dachau. The first thing that our tour guide did was impress upon us in no uncertain terms that Hitler was a terrible man, that the things that happened under his rule were indescribably inhumane, and that the concentration camps were death camps pure and simple, with or without a gas chamber. In case his words were not clear enough, we took a 22-minute video featuring photographs and narratives, all camp-specific. No details, no horror, no gore was spared. The intrigates lead to the main square in the camp where prisoners were required to congregate each morning and evening. What dominates the square today isn't the guard towers, though they are present and meticulously reconstructed. It is a memorial by... Yugoslav sculptor Glid Nandor. I had seen this, in, this 
sculpture and pictures before, and I have always found it to be one of the most impactful pieces of art I have ever seen. The artist, who had been a prisoner in one of Hitler's concentration camps himself, meant for the sculpture to commemorate the prisoners who had committed suicide by throwing themselves against the electrified gates of the camp. I appreciate that the sculptor makes no attempt to use our acknowledgement of the horror and hopelessness of life in the camps. This main memorial sculpture is one of many. There are four memorial buildings about about six monuments, the museum, and a convent that had been located on the site, and memorials are still being added. The gift shop sold books and documentaries. My impression was that the Germans took this deadly seriously, and I was impressed by the way the Germans are handling their national tragedy. They seem fully committed to owning this tragedy so as to never allow anything like this to happen anywhere again. Never did the guide try to sugarcoat the Holocaust, minimize the tragedy, or put anything into measured perspective. All of this may seem unremarkable. We've all heard that Hitler and his concentration camps were bad before. Hitler is no less synonymous with evil. Accordingly, it may seem to you that it could not be otherwise. It may seem that this tour of Dachau concentration camp was the only possible tour that could exist. Let's turn to the Lower Plantation tour. The main story in this tour was about the glamorous lives of Laura, the strong-willed female head of the plantation, and her family members. Plantation life was romanticized. Strong women, dueling men, wine collections, expensive furniture, distinguished visitors, breeze basking, and mint julep drinking, and an ever-expanding fortune. The plantation was done up to look gorgeous. I would guess that about 15-20% to 20% of the tour was spent on slave life. They showed us some documents listing the slave inventory at its peak. They talked about the laws regarding slaves and how they differed from laws elsewhere in the U.S. They revealed that the Br'er Rabbit stories were originally collected from slaves there. They discussed the extent of the sugarcane fields, and they allowed us to walk through the reconstructed two-family cabin, mentioning that slaves were allowed to have gardens. In contrast to the almost obscene documentation of the abuse and murder of concentration camp prisoners, this was the only image of a slave that I saw during the entire tour. The image shows one slave and two rows of slave cabins reaching back into the sugar cane from the year behind the main house. You can compare the reconstructed cabin with those in the image. It's hard to say, but I'm not sure I see a cute picket fence and gardens. Here are some things that were not included in our tour. Extended discussions of the health of slaves, their physical and emotional abuse, the breeding programs, rape, their punishing labor, the destruction of their families, the age at which slaves began to work, and all the other indescribably inhumane things about human slavery. The gift shop sold jam and honey, CDs, yummy-smelling candies, candy bars, New Orleans hot sauces, uh, dried alligator heads, little angels made out of pig cottons, and Laura's memoirs. The contrast with the Decau tour was nothing short of stunning. Could the Laura Plantation do a tour that mirrored that of Decau? Absolutely.
Should they do that tour? Absolutely. Plantations were many other things, but they were also the engine of slavery. It is this that should stand out as the most important thing about them. Concentration camps were many other things as well. Uh, military training sites, a daily job site for German soldiers, a factory producing goods, and a strategic part of the war effort. But we have absorbed the important lessons from them so thoroughly that it is difficult to even imagine what an alternative tour might look like. In contrast, one can visit the lower plantation and come away not really thinking of slavery at all. In favor of how pretty the china was, or, ooh, did you smell that candle as we walked by? Delicious. I need a Coke, you? A lot of Americans when Germany is mentioned, express disbelief that a people could live with a history like the Holocaust. But Americans do live with a history like the Holocaust. We just pretend it never happened. While Germany is processing its participation in a human rights tragedy, the U.S. is denying its own. While Germany is confronting its own ugly history for the betterment of the world, we are busy preserving the myth of U.S. moral superiority. Let that sink in. On plantations here in America, there's wine tastings, people have weddings. It's more about the fancy dress than actually being monuments to show us a shameful period in our history. And that needs to change. All right, number four. Some argue that these arguments are about the modern political climate and not history. I would argue that the reason that they are being heard may be due to the modern political climate, but the arguments were always historically there. Most of these monuments were erected during times when those who opposed them literally had no voice. It's so odd that many who claim patriotism for the United States of America want to prop up a fallen enemy. While culture and heritage are important, and I believe everyone has the right to their own, that does not mean that a heritage of hate or a culture of racism deserves to be at our courthouses, where ideally impartial justice is served, at our capitals, where ideally laws that benefit the many and not the few are passed, or are at our parks, where individuals find solitude and peace, and where family and friends find community at our schools that are endeavoring to educate our youth so that they can thrive and create a better future, and at our military bases that train and house our brave soldiers that defend the United States of America. Now, we are not obligated to continue to coddle fragile egos or let monuments stand for those who would deem us inferior. We choose the world we live in. We build the world we live in. The United States of America is a nation of aspiration. We are not shackled to our past. And starting this Independence Day, I implore all of you to endeavor to vanquish these shackles, these monuments that were propagated to induce fear, terror, and the belief that one race has more worth than another. It is time that we do not cave into the whining of those that cling to the need to have their second-place trophies in public places while claiming that if everyone is not subjected to their heritage of hate and culture of racism, that their culture is lost. If only it was that simple to erase hate. I know the removal of these propagandist monuments, 
is not going to erase prejudice and racism, and that it might even embolden those who choose to teach their grandkids to hate others, like this Confederate waving grandma. But it is high time that we stop surrounding ourselves with symbols of hate that are from a country that fought a war against the United States of America. I invite anyone with a shred of or an abundance of patriotism to do everything necessary to rid our public places of the propaganda of a short-lived country, the Confederate States of America, and for all of us to remember that this is the United States of America. And it is our duty to build a strong nation inside and out that we can be proud of. On that note, locally, I'd like to mention one event that is called Allies Rally Against Confederate and Police Violence. This is a rally by the Williamson County Patriots with the goal of relocating the Confederate Soldiers and Sailor Monument from the Williamson County Courthouse to either the Williamson County Museum or a nearby cemetery where Confederate soldiers are buried. This weekly rally will occur on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. in front of the courthouse located at 710 South Main Street in Georgetown, Texas. Today I'd like to leave you with this. The notion that slavery was beneficial to slaves was notably expressed by Jefferson Davis himself in the published memoir he wrote at Beauvoir. Enslaved Africans sent to America were enlightened by the rays of Christianity, he wrote, and increased from a few unprofitable savages to millions of efficient Christian laborers. Their servile instincts rendered them contented with their lot. Never was there a happier dependence of labor and capital upon each other. That's disgusting. Despicable. And don't think for a minute that the leaders we have now that welcome sacrificing people's health and safety for the sake of the almighty dollar and the economy would not be slave owners if they had lived in this time. Now that myth, a pillar of the lost cause, remains a core belief of neo-Confederates, despite undeniable historical proof of slavery's brutality. In 1850, the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who had escaped slavery, said, to talk of kindness entering into a relation in which one party is robbed of wife, of children, of his hard earnings, of home, of friends, of society, of knowledge, and of all that makes this life desirable is most absurd, wicked, and preposterous. Now, I dedicate this show to all those working for change in the streets and elsewhere, to my Latin brothers and sisters who are in cages at our borders, to all the workers who are deemed expendable by our leadership, and all those who know that today's reality need not be tomorrow's reality. Thanks for listening and going on this journey. If you were inspired to create an amazing future, leave us a five-star review, share with your friends, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.